And uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 13. Now I've got the... um, There have been days in my life where I've uh, maybe eaten a little bit too much. Shocker. And uh, right now I kind of have that feeling when I'm like looking at like this... Uh, there, was, there was a time where I ate a one-pound burger. And I'm looking at a delicious one-pound burger. And it's like, there's no way that I can eat all of this. But it's going to be so good. And I kind of feel like that right now. Because I don't know how I'm going to get through this passage that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, but it is so good. So, um, I already prayed for myself. And uh, you can, as you're listening, you can be praying for me, please. Now, recently I introduced my kids to a movie I enjoyed as a kid. It was Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. The movie is inspired by a book by the title, 1961 book, The Incredible Journey, also 1963 movie. The plotline of the movie is very straightforward. In the story, two dogs and a cat are left in the care of a family friend as their owners go off to attend to business elsewhere. Now, the animals are confused and concerned, like, why are we left behind? And so they set off on an incredible journey to be reunited to their owners. They set off on a journey home. Now the three animals, they experience a treacherous journey as they make their way across several hundred miles. But spoiler alert here, so plug your ears if you don't want to know. They make it back home. After watching the movie with the kids, I started thinking about how many stories and movies are about a journey. The storyline is often the same, just the characters change. So... You, I mean, think of The Wizard of Oz, or The Lord of the Rings, or just about every kid's movie. So Toy Story, or Finding Nemo, or Up. I mean, it's always these journeys, people embarking on a journey. There's some circumstance that results in discord, or separation, or disappointment. But then instead of just like a simple solution, the hero embarks on a perilous journey, fraught with unexpected danger. The promo always goes something like, join our heroes on this unforgettable adventure in this story like no other. It's really remarkable to think about. So many of the stories that surround us are stories of people going home. Sometimes home is a physical place. Sometimes it's a new place. Other times home is this place of meaning and purpose. The journey is about finding meaning and significance. These are the stories that fill our lives. But all of these stories, I think they get their appeal. They're so prevalent around us because they point to something much bigger much more significant. They point to a storyline that pervades Scripture. All of these other stories, they're, they're a shadow that point to the story. Now in one sense, Scripture starts with a simple plot. God creates the world. He creates people to dwell in it so that they might bring glory to His name and they might experience life with Him. But then we get to Genesis 3. And this, this perfect relationship is broken by sin. Humanity is kicked out of the garden, removed from the presence of God. Storyline sounds familiar. This broken, broken relationship, this separation. Then the Bible tells the story of how God has restored this relationship, both in the present and then for all eternity. Now, Exodus is a vital part of this story. It presents the story in microcosm. In many ways, it sets the tone for all that comes afterwards. Now, in Genesis, so the, book, the first book of the Bible, the book before Exodus, God makes a covenant with a man, a man named Abraham. There were three parts to God's promise. God promised that he would make Abraham a people, a great people. He promised that he would give him a land, a place to dwell. And he promised that he would be a blessing to all people. 
But when we get to the end of Genesis, he has indeed made them into a people. What once was just Abraham and Sarah now has become many people. But they're living in a foreign land. They're living in Egypt. And then Genesis closes with the death of Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. But before he died, Joseph, he said these words to his people. This is what it says in Genesis 50, verse 24 and 25. I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. But then we turn the page from Genesis to Exodus. And there's still no fulfillment of the promise that God has made. It actually gets worse. While the people of Israel, they increase in numbers, they are subjected to slavery in Egypt. But as if slavery wasn't bad enough, it gets worse from there. The king of Egypt, he seeks to kill every Hebrew boy by throwing them into the Nile River. Now, 400 years after Joseph has died and the covenant God made with his people, it just seems like a tall tale from the past. It seems like fiction from their fathers. Now, over the last two months, we've, we've entered the plight of the Hebrew slaves as we've studied Exodus 1 through 13 together. We made it to verse 16 in chapter 13. And we know and have seen that their situation and their suffering, it had a purpose. And the phrase that Larry and I have kept coming back to, the purpose of all of this was for God to make himself known. God is making himself known to his people and to all the world. You see, it was at the point of hopelessness for the Hebrew slaves that God ordained to have one of these Hebrew boys thrown into the Nile. Not to die, but to save a people. God called and raised up Moses to be his agent in delivering his people out of slavery. And every step of the way, every step of the way, God has been showing something of who he is through the burning bush, through revealing his name, through his triumph over Pharaoh, over Egypt, and over nature in the plagues. God is making himself known. And now it seems that God is finally making good on the promise He made way back to Abraham. In Exodus 13, the people have they've finally been freed. And they're heading home. But things don't occur as we would expect them to. And before we, we begin reading our passage, I just want to give you a heads up. So this is a narrative we're reading. It's a story. And I'm going to preach it like a story. So I'm not, we're not going to be... If you're taking notes, you're not going to hear, hey, point one... And now you need to get this. Point two, now you need to get this. Stories are told to impart truth and to inspire change. And uh, so that's, I'm going to be presenting this story. There's, there will be application along the way, but I'm not going to say, hey, here's how you apply this. I think you'll get it as we go. So look with me. We're going to read the first two verses of our passage. Exodus 13, verses 17 and 18. This is the Word of God. When Pharaoh let the people go... God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now God did not take his people on the direct route. He took them the, the long way around. Now I don't know about you, but I am generally opposed to the long way around. I fancy myself a card-carrying member of the straight route is the best route club. And I would have to imagine that there are some of the Hebrew people who are feeling the same way. Like, hey Moses, like the, the promised land's over there, why are we going this way? 
Now, we live in a culture that lives for the shortcut. Show me a more efficient way to do something, and I'll do it. We live in the age of of microwaves and airplanes, of FaceTime and soon-to-be driverless cars. All technological advancement moves in the same direction. And wants easy everywhere. Easy everywhere. Now, for all the captivation of journeys that we have, and we talked about just these stories everywhere, when it comes to real life, we generally don't like journeys. It starts at a young age. Show me a minivan that doesn't resound with a chorus of, are we there yet? But this doesn't change as we get older. Our desire is still the same. We just want to get there already. We just use different words to express it. We often live for some other day. We look ahead and think, you know, if we could just get to summer already, or high school, or college already, or that new job, or that dream house, or retirement, the list of things we long for lurks around every corner of our lives. So we want to get to the big things, marriage, kids, grandkids, financial security, good health, retirement. We tell ourselves, you know, once I get there, then I'll be able to really start living. But it's not just the big stuff, it's the smaller stuff too. We want to get to that meal or restaurant, that vacation or through that surgery. My point is this, we spend a lot of our time longing to get to point B, longing to get wherever there is. Let's just get there already. But there this, this place between point A and point B, that's where most of life is lived. We live in the middle. We exist between these big or small events. So more of your time is spent between meals than eating them. More of your time is spent on weekdays than the weekend. More of your time is spent between vacations than going on them. We spend a whole lot of our time wanting to get to these certain moments, forgetting the importance of the journey. We forget that this is where life happens, going from point A to point B. Now, if we weren't familiar with the story of Exodus, we would expect that when God saves his people miraculously, supernaturally from Egypt, that they would get to point B. Like we just walked through the 10 plagues. God exhibited his power over every aspect of nature and even over life and death. Surely this God can get his people to where they long to go, where he's promised they're going to go. But God isn't an easy everywhere God. God is a good all the time God. It would have been far faster for Israel Israel to go the short way, to take the direct route. But God is a compassionate and gracious God. And God always knows best. And in God's gracious sovereignty, sometimes the long way around is the best way to get there. Because God's ways, they're not like our ways. God is the God of the journey. The God who saves his people is the God that goes with his people. The God who rescues is the God who guides. God is the God of the pilgrim people. Now today we're setting off with Israel on this journey out of Egypt, and it's not as direct or quick as we might want it to be, but it's good. God still has much to teach his people. I heard it once say that that God isn't about rapid transportation. God is about education. God's priority isn't getting us to where we want to get. God's priority is glorifying himself by showing us who he is. You see, God in his wisdom, in his infinite wisdom, he not only knows the best destination for us, he knows the best way to get there. So God is in the business of leading his people his way. And our call is to trust and obey. And to Israel's credit, that's how they started out. Look at the end of verse 18 there, right where we stopped. 
And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Trust and obey. And God gave His people, He, he gave them two reminders of His care for, for them and His sovereignty over His people. Remember how Genesis ends? We just talked about it. Joseph dies in Egypt, and he, he commands his people to carry his bones up from there, to be buried with his fathers in the promised land. Joseph ends his life by, by trusting in God's promises, by placing his faith in the God of his people. And that's not something I'm making up. We see it in Hebrews 11, 11 verse 22, in this, the hall of faith as we know it. It says this, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and gave directions concerning his bones. So now look at Exodus 13, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on. So as the people depart from the promised land, Joseph's bones are brought as evidence of God's kindness and care for his people. But God doesn't stop there. He gives them that sign of his kindness and care, his faithfulness. But God still has more to reveal to his people and to the world about his glory and goodness. Now our journey through these first chapters of Exodus, these first 13 chapters of Exodus, they tell us how how God came to his people. He came to them in their trouble. This next section, so really from Exodus 13, 17 through the end of 18, speaks of how God goes with his people on their journey. It starts right here. Look Look at verse 20, chapter 13. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now just a quick side note, there wasn't two different pillars. There was one, and during the day it appeared like a cloud. At night it gave light. It appeared like fire. So that's going to come up at different points, but just remember, oh, it's just one thing. Sometimes the Hebrew splits it out and makes it sound like two. So these closing chapters of chapter, verses of chapter 13, they're, they're transitional. As the people embark on their journey, they're given these two signs of God's steadfast love for them. They bring Joseph's bones as a reminder of God's faithfulness, and God goes with them, leading them. These, these signs, they're meant to get us going on the journey with the people of Israel. And so our journey begins. Israel has made their way from Egypt, being led by the very presence of God, and the Lord goes before them. And he does not depart from before the people. But then something curious occurs when we get to chapter 14. Look at verse 1 there, chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. God's people have been brought to the edge of the wilderness, as we just read. They are on the brink of leaving Egypt, leaving their slavery, leaving their oppression, leaving their suffering behind. And God tells them to turn back. Now, how frustrating do you think that would be if you were an Israelite? When Christine and I, when we pack up our kids and and pack our van full of our stuff to take a trip, we'll go like five hours at a time without stopping. Rule with an iron hand. So we go, we go a long way. We want to get there in every stop that we take. It eats away at the time that we're going to have enjoying, enjoying our destination. Now, there are two times I'm aware of on a trip. There's two types of time. There's 
journey time, and there's not journey time. And I want journey time to be as little as possible. So sometimes we get about one minute down the road. Like we're just pulling out of our neighborhood kind of thing. And Christine remembers something we forgot. Now in that moment, I'm weighing the importance of that thing. And like more often than not, I decide that that, the agony of backtracking, of turning back, and losing what would now be at least two minutes of not journey time is not worth retrieving that thing. So on we go. Now, here Israel, they're not going on vacation. They're fleeing captivity. They're bound for the promised land. And not only has God taken them the long way, brought them to the edge of the wilderness the long way, now He's telling them to turn back. But God doesn't stop with just turn back. He discloses to Moses His sovereign hand at work for His own glory. God tells Moses, look down at verse 3, He says, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Then Moses records these words. And they did so. The people turned back. God has a plan and a purpose for his people turning back. He is going to get glory for himself as he triumphs over the king of Egypt. For all the Egyptians have, the Israelites have been through, oh, I'm sorry, for all the Egyptians had been through, they still didn't know that God is God. I don't know if you remember back in Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh comes to Moses and he says this, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So then God sends ten plagues. You think Pharaoh gets the point then? Even after those ten plagues, even after killing every firstborn son not covered by the Passover blood, the Egyptians still don't know that God is God. The God of Israel is Lord over all. And we see clearly here that God's primary purpose in the Exodus was not just deliverance. It was communication. God is making Himself known. He wants Israel and all the world to see and know that He is God and there is no other. Israel's God is unrivaled and unmatched. There is no God like this God. Now our narrative is going to shift. It shifts from the encampment of Israel to the kingly courts of Pharaoh. We read how the hardening of Pharaoh's heart plays out in Egypt. Look at verse 5. We'll read to verse 9. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. So it's definitely more than a thousand chariots he brought with them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi Haharath in front of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh sees that the people have gone, and so he assembles an army to go after them. So look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people see the Egyptians coming, and they're terrified. Because God has had them go the long way, now he's had them turn back, and he's had them turn back so they are backed up against what we know as the Red Sea. 
And they've got the Red Sea behind them, the Egyptians coming after them. They thought they were finally out of the grasp of their oppressors. But just after what they see as their liberation, they've been set free, the tormentor of their past comes storming back. Now perhaps you've experienced this in your own life. Maybe there were certain sins that plagued you prior to salvation. And now that you're saved, you feel like these things should be well behind you. When you see that temptation rearing its head, once again, great discouragement, fear might overcome you. You thought you were beyond this. Now to give you more personal with this, many of your lives have been affected as those around you and perhaps you yourself have been slandered by people who once knew you, who you once loved. There was a season where this consumed your life, but then over time you moved beyond it. But then recently these, these tormentors of the past, they've come back and you're discouraged. You may feel hopeless. Even after all that you've seen God do, his, his faithfulness, his grace, his kindness towards you, you can wonder how can God be in this? And maybe you've gone even further and you've questioned the very sovereignty or power or wisdom or love of God. This is where Israel found themselves. No sooner did Israel get out of Egypt than great peril came back from their past. They find themselves being pursued by Pharaoh's mighty army, and so they cry out to the Lord. But rather than crying out for help, they cry out to complain. Look at verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now, think about the absurdity of this complaint, just for a moment. Ask anyone, anyone in the world to describe what they think of when they hear the word Egypt, and most people will mention the pyramids. Massive tombs that were around when the Hebrews were there. And these, they're tombs, they're graves. Are there no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here? The people then accuse God of bringing them out to die. They say this, What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? In verse 12, Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, notice more craziness coming out of their mouths. First, the collective voice of the people as they were enslaved in Egypt was not, Leave us alone. They said this when Pharaoh made their work more difficult. But as God worked miraculously in delivering the people, they had left that idea far, far behind. Second, no one wanted the Israelites to die. The Egyptians were pursuing them not to kill them, but to bring them back as slaves. The response of the Israelites to this threat of danger is to question God, to question his wisdom, to question his power. They greatly fear the danger they face, and it makes them say crazy stuff. But listen to Moses' stunning call to the people in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. At this point, God has not given Moses or the Israelites any specifics on what he's about to do. And from a human perspective, they have, they have no shot here. They're trapped. See on one side, and the Egyptians coming after them on the other. And Moses says, don't fear. Wait. Watch. What an incredible example of faith Moses provides. This faith is not going to save Israel. Salvation is God's and God's alone. 
But faith, as Hebrews 11.1 1 says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, we can stand firm without fear before seemingly hopeless circumstances. Moses is placing his faith in what God has done and what he's promised to do. And again, it's not faith in the specifics of what God will do. God hasn't told him that yet. He doesn't know what he's going to do. All he knows is that God has brought them to this place. And he knows that God says that I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. So he says, stand firm. Now the call to us, brothers and sisters, is the same. When condemnation weighs us down, we're to stand firm. Because as Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Satan aims to dismantle the church, we stand firm. We don't fear because Jesus has declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Don't fear. Stand firm and see what God will do. Now what we've already seen in Exodus up to this point is that Israel's deliverance, it's not about freedom, but it's rather about ownership. When we come to the Red Sea, what's at stake is ownership. Who did the Israelites belong to? Did they belong to the king of Egypt or the king of the universe? So God is claiming his people as his own. He's brought them out of slavery, but Egypt is not going to give them up without a fight. They've already been delivered, but they're not yet safe. And this is still our state today. We read of this in 1 Peter 5.8. Peter writes this, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Stand firm in your faith. One commentator, Alec Motyer, he writes this. He says, Christians participate in the exodus that was accomplished by Jesus. But the satanic ruler from whom they have been delivered will no more give up the struggle for repossession than did Pharaoh long ago. In this way, Exodus 14 is a description of the past which speaks volumes to the present at the two points of spiritual warfare and temporal duty. Now this, this spiritual warfare, this, this spiritual battle, it's the Lord's. God took complete responsibility for Israel's continuing as God's redeemed people. Salvation belongs to the Lord and no one else. It's all of God. This is the case from, from beginning to end. From initial salvation to continuing in salvation to final security in God's eternal kingdom. He will never let his people go. We sing about this often. We sing, he will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. He will never let his people go. But while the spiritual battle is the Lord's, God's people are still responsible to act. Look at 1415. Chapter 14, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Now, this was a rebuke not of Moses, but of the people. Moses is a representative of the people. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. God tells his people to go forward, to move on. One commentator writes, here was something not even to pray about. The danger could not have been more extreme, and yet it was not a matter for prayer. So, while it is salvation that belongs to the Lord, the pilgrims did, however, have an earthly task and duty to fulfill. They had to continue with their pilgrimage. Now, again, the same is true for us today. We're not to fear. We're to stand firm on God's promises. But we don't quit the journey. We go forward. When we face the unknowns of life, when we face circumstances that, that confound and bewilder, we want answers. 
Some might echo the prayer of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we can think we're being super spiritual. But more often than not, God makes it very clear what we are to do. It's just not the kind of clarity that we want. We want the answer to the problem now. But God says, go forward. Continue on the journey. We want resolution, but God says, it's going to be painful. Trials are going to continue. The world will oppose you, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God calls us to go forward, to live faithfully on the journey in the day-to-day. Now think about what this meant for the Israelites. In Exodus 12, the end of Exodus 12, we're told that about 600,000 men made their way out of Egypt. 600,000 men. So this doesn't include women and children. So well over a million people have now set up camp on the shore of the Red Sea. Now I'm not a big camping guy, but I've been camping a few times, and like I've only ever camped with like six people, and it still takes a long time, like set up and pack down, or whatever, get everything out and put everything away. The Egyptians are bearing down on the Israelites. They think they're all going to die. And God tells them, go forward. Move on. Now the only way for this people to go forward was to pack up the camp. So that's what God tells them to do. Start rounding up your kids. Pack up your tents. Get your stuff together. Stop worrying and go forward. A lot of times our moving forward looks like standing firm on truth and watching the Lord work. It means being faithful with the little things and waiting for God to do the big things. Salvation is God's and God's alone. Then God reveals what he's about to do. Now this next scene is one of the most vivid and often repeated instances of God's deliverance in the Bible. It comes up again and again as God's people recall how how God brings about salvation. You know, this narrative is going to be told two different ways, one after the other. First in prose in chapter 14, followed by the same narrative relayed in, in song in chapter 15. Now let's look at the rest of chapter 14 together, being in verse 16. Lift up your staff. God talking to Moses. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, for them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Now we're not sure what happened here with the cloud. All we know is that it moved between the Israelites and the Egyptians and allowed the Israelites to pack up their camp. Now continue with me in verse verse 21. And as we read, just take note of how the Lord's actions dominate the scene. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Notice that the the Lord there is is God's name for himself, all capital, L-O-R-D. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. Now it's interesting to note that this occurred in the morning. The most powerful Egyptian god was the god of the sun. So the Egyptians would be thinking that now our god is here. Now he's going to help us. God waits until the morning to have the waters return to them and destroy them all. As the Egyptians fled into the water, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of, and of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Wow. Now over the last couple centuries or so, it's become fashionable to try to question the details of this narrative, to try and say, you know, maybe the Israelites didn't cross on dry ground. Maybe it was just like a marshy area at low tide. And people want to say that the waters probably didn't pile up like walls, but rather the writer is just exaggerating. It's hyperbole. And when you hear this kind of stuff, it's helpful to remember a couple things. First, the Egyptian army at this time was like the most powerful army in the world. And one of the primary reasons for their dominance was their chariots. Chariots, if you're unaware, they're these two-wheeled wagons drawn by horses. And the wheels would have been wooden bound by some kind of metal. They were only good on dry ground which for Egypt, it really wasn't an issue because it was mostly desert. There was a lot of dry ground around. They knew the danger of running a chariot into the mud. It would be useless. You've got no advantage if your chariot's in the mud. But that's just what the Egyptians did. They were so convinced by the safety of the road that opened up in the Red Sea that they thought, we can go right in here, we're fine. Second, remember who was doing the parting. Now the way it's described in verse 21, it's like creation all over again. Genesis 1.9, we read this. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God separated the waters and land appeared. God did it once. He can do it again. Also, look at God's purposefulness in all that he has done. So back in chapter 10, during the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, the Lord brings these locusts to cover the land of Egypt through an east wind. In chapter 10, verse 13, we read, Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon all the land that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. When God parts the Red Sea, he similarly, he brings a strong east wind all night and makes the sea dry land. But I bring this up because when Pharaoh pleads for mercy, we read in 10, verse 19, that the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind. He reversed what he did which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And this is Genesis ten nineteen. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. Not one locust was left. They met their death in the Red Sea. Now, even in carrying out this eighth plague, God meant it to point forward to a greater deliverance. For Pharaoh's army came after Israel, and we read in verse 28, of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. The Lord God made them all like the locusts, meeting their death in the Red Sea. Now, the people of Israel, they experienced this incredible deliverance. Witness their response in 14, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. 
So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Notice here the tremendous change that has taken place in just over 20 verses. In verse 10, the people fear greatly because of the Egyptian pursuit. Now in verse 31, they fear the Lord. In verses 11 and 12, they question Moses and they doubt God. In verse 31, they believe in the Lord and in Moses. By the hand of the Lord, Israel has once again been saved. And this time, he has completely wiped out their foes. God's people have put their trust in him, they have obeyed him, and now they worship him. Now before we read these next verses, know that in Exodus 15, we see what Israel has come to know of the Lord. Here there's no mention of human activity, human agency. No mention of people doing anything to work salvation. It's all of God. Read with me. We're going to read chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, and now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The call of Psalm 98 verse 1 is this, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. This is the response of God's people. God does great things, so we, we sing to him. Now, much could be said about this song, about this chapter, but I'm not going to say it all. 
Uh, I want to just highlight one thing. We're going to hone in on one verse here. And this is where I'm like leaving a couple bites of the burger off the side because I just can't I just can't eat it all. Chapter 15, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The love that God has for his redeemed, it's like the love publicly expressed at a wedding. So certainly this couple at their wedding is is in love, but the point of the wedding series is not so that everyone can see that they're in love. Rather, it's a place where they express their unconditional commitment to one another. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. Now at their wedding, the couple makes a commitment saying that there is no circumstance or situation that will change my relationship to you. This is like the love the Lord leads us in. It's his hesed. We talked about it a lot when we went through Ruth not too long ago. His steadfast love. This is God's love for his redeemed people. It's out of this love that he delivers his people. He goes with them and he brings them to their heavenly home. As Romans eight thirty-eight and 39 tells us, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This song that bursts onto the scene in Exodus 15 is not just a song for Israel's day. It's a song that rings out throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture. There are over 25 references to the crossing of the Red Sea in Scripture. This is how God's people remembered God's mercy. Just one example, Isaiah 63, 10-14. The people have rebelled, and Isaiah prophesies this. He says, They rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy, and Himself fought against Him. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put, them, put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? He went with them. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down in the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. God leads his people in his steadfast love for his glory. Now the song of Exodus 15 is a song for, for our day, but it's also a song for all eternity. We see this in Revelation 15. There John, John has this vision of a sea of glass and fire, and he sees all those who have conquered the evil ones standing beside the sea. And he records this in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That salvation that God worked for Israel, the Red Sea, was never just about getting Israel to the promised land. Its significance wasn't confined, confined to one place at one time. God's work here pointed forward to the central point in history. At the moment when Pharaoh thought he had the Israelites right where he wanted them, their backs against the Red Sea, with nowhere to go, God worked for Israel this decisive salvation. He brought them through what should have been their watery grave and brought them out on the other side with new life. At the moment when Satan 
thought that he had Jesus right where he wanted him to be, hanging, bloody on the cross, dead, lying in a grave. God used this death to kill death once and for all. Jesus passed through the grave, and he rose victorious on Easter Sunday. And now for all those who hope in him, they receive this resurrection life. Our sins indeed have been forgiven. This we know. Our eternity has been made secure. When the Israelites looked out over the Red Sea and saw the dead bodies of the Egyptians washing up on the shore, they knew they had been saved. They knew that the past was past. When we look to Jesus, our crucified Savior, with His completed work on the cross, His finished work of salvation, when we see His resurrection, the confirmation of His work, we too know that salvation, both now and for eternity, is ours. God has triumphed gloriously over all his enemies, every last one of them. Now look at verses 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountains. This is future tense, speaking of a future day. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, your home. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. We began by talking about these journeys and how, how the Bible is speaking of this journey in, in bringing man back into relationship with himself. Bringing him back to the garden in one sense where he might fully glorify him by enjoying him. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord will do. He triumphed over all of his enemies and he will continue to triumph forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So our call, turn to him. Trust in Him. Obey Him. Follow Him. Rejoice in Him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Father, our hearts are full as we look to You, as we look to Your victory through Jesus Christ, Your victory over Satan and death and the grave, Your victory over our sin. Lord, thank You that for those who have placed their hope in you. They're trusting you. They, they are washed clean by your blood. We can stand clothed in your righteousness. And thank you, Lord, that the salvation you worked for Israel points forward to, to the salvation we can experience today, where you bring us once and for all to your, your heavenly home, where you reign forever and ever. Lord, give us eyes to, to look forward to that day as we embark upon our journey day after day, as we seek to be faithful to glorify you. Lord, we look to you and we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.